Thank you once again for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, this is your first time, uh, or if you haven't been with us in a while, we, we were in the midst of studying uh, and preaching through the book of Exodus. Um, and if you miss any of the sermons in that series, uh, please take the time to watch them uh, on our Facebook page. Um, last week, uh, the reason why we're in this topic, the reason why the video is what it is, and the reason why we are on Genesis 3 all of a sudden, uh, is because last week we began taking up another aspect of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, that is, I think, is directly applicable to believers uh, today. Um, before that, we took up the first significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we, uh, points to the lifestyle of faith that believers should walk in, if you guys remember that. Um, and again, I'm referring to our continuous growth in faith uh, that manifests itself in the life of a true believer. Uh, one of the ways it manifests itself is, is uh, not just in good deeds, but in our sensitivity to sin. We, we talked about that. That's why the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, tells them, cleanse your house, cleanse, your, cleanse yourself of, of leaven, as a leaven uh, being used as a pointer to, to sin. Uh, the second significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we began taking up last week is uh, this time the lifestyle of worship of a believer. Uh, part of the instructions that we saw last week was for the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for them to have a holy assembly. Uh, we talked about this last week, right? Uh, or a convocation on the first and last days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and I said last week that this was a pointer to our uh, Sunday worship services, the we do right now, uh, and ultimately a pointer to the Sabbath day uh, that will be instituted by God uh, to you as we continue with our story. Uh, I said that the origins of a formal worship service, as instructed by God in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is a day to drop everything and to just focus on the goodness of God through the salvation that He brings to the lives of His people. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for, to commemorate Salvation from Egypt, salvation from slavery, salvation from the 10th plague. Right? We talked about that. And this, these worship services that they were supposed to have uh, was supposed to be a focus and a celebration of, of that. Um, in the days of the Exodus and in the Jewish celebrations that are still happening today, uh, the salvation, again, that they're celebrating is that, freedom from slavery, uh, freedom from the plague. But for Christians, um, our celebration of uh, the feast or, or the Passover uh, is different in our worship services. Uh, we celebrate for the similar, with the same purpose in mind, to commemorate God's goodness, but for a different reason. Uh, for us, our worship services should be a celebration of God's salvation, but this time we celebrate it uh, through the, the giving of Christ, right? the salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, and I mentioned this over and over again during our sessions or during our services, during uh, when we're taking up the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that those things ultimately point to Christ, ultimately point to the greater salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and I said last week as well that 
One of the main reasons why our worship services have lost its weightiness and significance is because we've lost that understanding of what it is that we are commemorating. Uh, and we do it all the time. Uh, everything that we commemorate seems to be, you know, have been watered down throughout the years. Uh, one of the uh, things that I mentioned, examples, was Thanksgiving. You know, we used to celebrate Thanksgiving because of the goodness of God. Now it's just Turkey Day. We used to celebrate Christmas for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's just an excuse to buy yourself a gift. <laughs> I mean, my wife, we, we don't buy our, each other gifts anymore because I don't know what she wants. Sometimes, you know, I can't read her mind. So, yeah, Christmas, anniversaries, Valentine's Day, go get your own <laughs> gift. Uh, but is that what it's supposed to be? No, we've lost why we commemorate these things. We lost the meaning of it, and unfortunately, it's happening in our worship services. We've lost why we come here, why we're supposed to be celebrating when we come here. Instead, every morning, I stand up to a bunch of angry people, a bunch of people who are, I don't know, like sour. You just look sour, <laughs> especially today. Uh, it's raining outside. It's nice to just sleep in. Somebody told me that earlier. <laughs> right? So you come to church grumpy. Is that why, that's not how we're supposed to be. This is not how what service is supposed to be. This is not when you sing the songs. This is not how you're supposed to sing. But that's what's happening, right? And not just our church. A lot of churches. We have lost the enjoyment of God's salvation. King David, Psalm 51 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why did he say that? Because he just messed up. He just committed adultery and murder, right? What, what did he lose when he did that? When he lost focus on God? He lost the joy of God's salvation. And for a lot of us, that's missing. We've lost it. Uh, the joy of the salvation. And I think it's because we don't have a grip. We don't have a grip of what salvation is. Um, that's why it led us to today. Today's topic, uh, just like what I said last week, will be a focus on the basics of Christianity. Why are we here? Why do we come to church every Sunday? Even if we don't want to, some of us, I got to be, I have to be there. And I come here all miserable. Why? Why do we do it? We're going to focus on the basics of Christianity. What does God's salvation mean? How important and weighty God's salvation is in the life of a believer. Right? Who's a believer in here? Nobody? Everybody's unbeliever? Maybe I should change the sermon. All of us are supposed to be professing believers, Right? How weighty is your salvation to you? If your salvation was taken away, the way it was given, would you be desperate? Would you, how would you react? How weighty is salvation in the life of a believer? Now, the study of salvation, or the big word for it in, for theologians, anybody know? What's the big word for salvation in, in Theological circles. Saved. 
<laughs> There's a big word for it. Like, like, like sanctification. That's a big word. All it, all it means is growth, right? There's a big word for salvation. Soter. Some, some of you know it. Soteriology. It's a study of God's salvation. That's what we're doing these next two, three, maybe even four Sundays. As, as long as <laughs> I've coughed. I, you know, I've exhausted my knowledge when it comes to this. Just like what Paul says, right? I wash my hands because I have delivered to you the whole counsel of God. That's what my goal is for the next four Sundays, is to deliver to you the whole counsel of God when it comes to salvation. Right? So I'm going to try to present this to you this morning. And, uh, I'm gonna, it's it's going to be compressed. Otherwise, we're going to be here for the whole year. So I'm going to try to compress it. At the same time, the reason why... Uh, I'm going to compress it, is to encourage those who have questions or who, who will have questions after this to come and ask them or join the basic Bible class. <laughs> so this is kind of like an uh, appetizer for you guys. So if you have a lot of questions when it comes to this, especially study of Genesis, um, just come to a basic Bible class. You can ask your questions there. Obviously, you can't ask it here. Uh, so feel free to sign up for that. Now, 10 minutes in already. This morning, my goal is to first show you that the topic of God's salvation is a main part of the overall theme of the whole Bible. I would say it is the whole Bible. The whole Bible talks about this. It's not just a, a, a topic in the New Testament. You can see it in the Old Testament as well. The main theme when it comes to the wholeness of the Bible, I would say, revolves around salvation. And the central figure of that topic revolves around who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole Bible talks about Jesus. Even in Genesis, Jesus is being talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, we can also refer to this topic of salvation as part of this theme of the kingdom of God. If somebody asks you, what's the Bible about? What's your answer? It's about Jesus and the kingdom of God. That's it. <laughs> the whole Bible is about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Van Pelt said that. Okay, Van Pelt is one of the theologians at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, he said, when asked about the Bible's context, we can answer with confidence that the whole Bible is about Jesus and the kingdom of God. In addition to that, Van Pelt also said that the kingdom of God is the overall theme that comprehends, encompasses every other theme encountered in scriptures from creation to new creation. So let's say from old creation to new creation, including covenant, the theme of covenant, including the theme of law, prophet, priest, king, Redemption, wisdom, war, the nations, inheritance, uh, divine presence, idolatry, clothing. You know that there's a clothing theme in the Bible? Right? We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? It revolves around salvation, judgment, theme of judgment, and salvation, faith, hope love and any other 
theme is that cut across the pages of the Bible. It revolves around the kingdom of God and Jesus. Again, at the center of this kingdom theme, the glue that holds everything together, the glue that makes the Bible unified as far as a set of writings is concerned, as far as the, the message of the Bible is concerned, as far as the purpose of the Bible is concerned, the glue that holds all those things together is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at your Bibles. Who has Bibles here? Not your electronic ones. I'm just talking about the actual. It has a, a thing, right? What is it called? This, this part that holds everything together? Spine. The book spine. You take the spine out, all the pages will fall off. They will go their separate ways. That's what happens when you read the Bible apart from Jesus Christ. So if you read the Bible and you don't see Jesus and you're not looking for Jesus, your theology would be skewed. You would have a wrong understanding of what the Bible says because it is Christ who holds everything together as far as the teachings of the Bible is concerned. Everything that's being taught from the old to the new is a pointer to Christ. That's why we're studying the Exodus the way we're doing. That's why we're discussing worship the way we're discussing it, because it all revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the whole scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we will see a cohesiveness, a unity that ultimately points to, and again, Van Pelt said, a single divine author working in conjunction with numerous human instruments who participated in the writing process. It's only one author of the Bible, ultimately, the one who holds it together, Jesus Christ. That's why it has to make sense. The whole thing has to coincide, has to it has to be united. You can't interpret one verse of Scripture that goes against something else, Old and New Testament. You can't read your Bible that way. Because there's only one author. There's only one purpose. There's only one meaning. It all points to the salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? I'll show you a outline. And again, this is Van Pelt. He summarized the Bible like this. And I, and I kind of agree. Uh, no, this is not it. Uh, can you show the whole thing? There we go. Okay. When you look at the Bible, okay, uh, you read from Genesis to Revelation. It talks about in Genesis, creation of heaven and earth. Main focus. Another main focus of the Bible is the covenant, the marriage. Now, some people, they, they just skip through that in Genesis 2, but that's the main focus of the Bible. If you look at Revelation, okay, at the bottom of the, the screen, there's also creation. Creation of what? New heaven and earth. Uh, there's also marriage. Marriage consummates the coming of Christ being married to his church. And in the middle of it, in Genesis, the destruction of Satan was promised. Genesis 3, 15. In Revelation, the destruction of Satan was accomplished. So if you look at the Bible, that's how it works, right? It's like... Um, it's like, uh, what do you call that? When you, 
when you, when you have a similar sides, what do you call that? Like a, it, there's a symmetry to it. But the symmetry is reverse, right? At the top, it's mankind's fall. But from top to, from bottom to middle, or from middle to, to bottom, it's mankind's redemption. But there's a symmetry to it in that there's both creations. Okay? Marriage points to a bigger picture. Okay? The marriage in the Old Testament points to the bigger picture of the marriage of Christ and the church. And in the middle of it, destruction of the enemy. Promised in Genesis, accomplished in Revelation. And I would say in the middle of that, in the middle of Satan's being promised to be destroyed and Satan being destroyed, finally, in the middle of that, is who? Lord Jesus Christ. He's right in the middle of the Scriptures. He's right in the middle of the story of salvation, right in the middle of the kingdom of God. Van Pelt once again said this, by beginning and ending in the same way, but in reverse, the Bible exhibits a remarkable level of unity in both design and purpose. I don't know if you read your Bible that way, but you should. Otherwise, you'll take one verse and run with it, not comparing it to the verses around. Right now, there are, okay, when it comes to um, interpreting scriptures, it's not black and white. Okay. One of our deacons brought it up to me last week because of my use of um, uh, leaven as a pointer to faith. Okay? And the reason why he brought it up was because there are some commentaries that do talk about the parable of the leaven um, that they're saying that, this is not really talking about the spread of faith, but the spread of corruption, as leaven is usually in scriptures attributed to or uh, as a pointer to sin. Right? But my point, when I said that last week, and I just want to clarify it, if there's two, um, um, I guess, opposite interpretations like that, because my interpretation, the way I read Matthew 13, the parable of the uh, the parable of leaven, a, a woman took some leaven, hid it in bread and the, until the whole bread was leavened. I saw that as a parable for faith. Meanwhile, other people and a, a whole lot of people, uh, I would say equal amounts of people, saw it as a, no, it's still sin. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of sin, um, you know, multiplying and spreading. If you see something like that in Scripture and you have this, these two opposite uh, interpretations. You can't just pick a side. You can't. Because the point of that whole, <laughs> the point of that whole thing is, it's not actual leaven per se, it's the characteristic of leaven. So you can't say that just leaven is just a pointer to, um, to sin. Meanwhile, there are others who say, no, it's a pointer for faith as well. So if, you, if, you're, if it's like that, where do you stand? You look at why leaven, right? And I think that's what I did the last, when I talked about this. Why leaven? Right? So we can disagree when it comes to the interpretations because a lot of people disagree. Uh, it's not just uh, me or whoever else here that took that up uh, or, or read into that. 
the, the uh, different way that I read into it. But my point is, if you don't focus on the leaven, if we take leaven out and you just look at the characteristics, that's what faith is. And that's what sin, characteristics of sin is. That's why the Lord Jesus had to come. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. When, sin, when Adam sinned, how, did, how is it that we, all of us became sinners? You ever think about that? Like this, is the, this is a big discussion in, in, in evangelical, even the Catholic, uh, the original sin, the concept of original sin. How does that happen? I'm going to talk about it later on, but when you think about it, it's the same as uh, thinking about the characteristics of leaven, because that's what sin does. Now, when Jesus came, it's the same thing when he planted that seed of faith. That's why we can't say to people, hey, you've been a believer for 10 years. How come you're still like that? You can't say that. You can't be judgmental in that sense because faith, if it's alive, it will work. But it's not going to work the same for everybody. But the point is, it's going to grow. And I said that during my sermon as well. Um, so hopefully you take it as that. So yeah, read up on the commentaries. Read up, research it. But don't take one side or the other because you're missing the point. Because if, if that's us, then I just take one side. You just take the other side. And we're going to both disagree. The Bible doesn't work that way. You have to agree on something because the Bible is cohesive like that. Right? It's unified. And I think the message, as far as the use of leaven is concerned, is its characteristics when it comes to sin when it comes to faith. I hope that's clear. Right? And in the middle of it both is Jesus Christ. Leaven for sin is ultimately defeated by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is ultimately brought to life by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Check it out. Genesis 3.15 in the Old Testament, Jesus was mentioned. Where? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What is God trying to say here? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are never going to get along. <laughs> They're always going to be fighting. That's enmity. Right? They're never going to get along. They're always going to be fighting. Right? What's the, what's the seed of the woman going to do to the seed of the serpent? You're going to bruise. He will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So how is the seed of the woman going to kill the seed of the serpent? He's going to step on it, right? When he steps on it, snakes bite. When the snakes, snake bites you on the heel and that's a poisonous snake, what happens to you? If you're, not, if you're not rescued, uh, those people are sleeping. If a snake was beside you right now, you'd get bitten right now. If a snake bites you, you die. Right? That's what it's saying. The seed of the woman, even though, yes, he's going to defeat the serpent, he has to die for it. 
Who is that? Jesus Christ. Old Testament, Jesus Christ. Mentioned. In the New Testament, where is Jesus mentioned? 2 Corinthians 1.20. And in the New Testament, he's mentioned everywhere, but I'm just going to use this. 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. New Testament is saying all the promises referring to the Old Testament, all of that will find their fulfillment in Christ. That's why when you pray, you say, in Jesus' name. Some people don't say that. If you don't say that, you're not claiming promises. <laughs> right? Because all the promises find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we say, in Jesus' name. When we ask God for something, in Jesus' name. You're claiming it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who paid for whatever it is that you're asking for. <laughs> Jesus is mentioned in the old, in the new, and even in Revelation. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Keep going. 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who, is desire, who desires to take the water of life without price. 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, John says. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Who is the one that testifies to the end time? Jesus Christ. He's there. Beginning, middle, end. He is the one that is holding the whole Bible together. In fact, even the arrangement of our Bibles points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Check out this. Okay? This is from my Old Testament class, by the way. See how the Bible is arranged? In the Old Testament, I know that uh, in our Old Testament, it's not arranged like this. In the English one that you have, this is the arrangement of scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. The Bible that Jesus was reading, the apostles were reading back in their times, they divided into three, law, prophets, writings. Hmm? What's the law? God's way of salvation. Prophets, the people who deliver it. Writings, how do you live under that? That's, that's what it means. Now, if you look at the flip side of it, and see how Genesis and Revelation actually are bookends, that's their purpose. They hold the whole uh, Bible, the stories inside of it, the, 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 you know, the, the writings, the prophets, the law, the, the, the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation uh, kind of uh, holds it together, Okay. So it starts with Genesis, ends in Revelation, but the story is all in the middle. So if you flip it to the New Testament, 
that law became covenant. It's the fulfillment of, right? Look what's under salvation. If law was salvation in the old, look at, the, look at what's under the new in terms of salvation. It's the story of Jesus Christ through the Gospels. And then look at the prophets. Who are the prophets back in those days? The, guy, the, the people that God sent in order to uh, you know, convey his message to people. Prophets. In the new, where is it at? Acts of the Apostles. It's the apostles that are the new prophets uh, in the New Testament. And then when it comes to writings, how does God talk to us right now to apply these truths into our lives? Through the letters. Before it was through the writings. Songs, Proverbs, by the way. Attend <laughs> adult Sunday school. You need that. Right? So God gave you... Uh, Law, salvation, how, do you, how are you saved? God sent somebody to preach it. Now, how do I live under it? That's, that's the arrangement of the whole Bible. And I, that line in the middle that separates the two, Jesus Christ, again. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, fulfillment of the promises, fulfillment of prophecy. He's it. And then he shows up in the New Testament. And then in the New Testament, when he shows up, nobody wants to. Even his own people don't want to have anything to do with him. Why? Because they're waiting for somebody else. They didn't think that what God promised in the Old Testament was going to be this guy. Came out of Nazareth. But again, it shows. Jesus Christ is in the middle of this whole story, this whole kingdom story of salvation. Clear? I feel like I've preached this like a hundred times. This is still the same reaction. Clear? Not even asking for anything. I'm just asking if it's clear. I'm not saying, telling you to come teach her. Hopefully, seeing that will make salvation, will make that topic more interesting, more valuable, more weighty to you. Because that's, that's it. He is that important. The Lord Jesus Christ I'm talking about. Now, Now that we've seen how salvation is central to God's word and how Jesus is in the middle of this whole redemption plan, this whole redemption history, let's answer another question. Why does God need to save us to begin with? Where does this whole thing start? Remember the definition of salvation that was given? Salvation is what? Be taken away, saved from some harm, right? Why do we need to be saved to begin with? Remember the... A uh, video I showed you last week about the, uh, the professor when he was asked, what is salvation to you? It's like somebody tackled you, right, and said, it's okay, I saved you. Saved them from what? That was the question we were trying to answer, right? Why does, why does the guy who tackled you need to do that in the first place? That's what we're going to take up. That's what we're going to look at in Genesis 3. 
Why did God, why does God need to do this to begin with? Genesis 1, uh, sorry, 3, 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Skip. Skip to verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God has sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Why does God need to save? All of us answer, because we sin. I'm going to go through it. Hopefully everybody's awake now. Now, there are a lot of questions when it comes to the Genesis account, okay? And my wife asks me all kinds of questions when it comes to this. It drives me crazy because I'm like, you're missing the point. But that's the way she reads. So everybody has their own way of reading this, and there's a lot of questions that come. Um, but for our purposes this morning, um, hold your questions. Uh, I'm going to try, for our purposes this morning, I'm going to try to show you how the fall of the first human beings led to the world that we live in today. That's, that's all I'm going to try to show you. And that's why we need salvation. Okay? If you have any questions, again, sign up for basics. We'll deal with your questions online or wherever, wherever you want to talk about it. But for our purposes, that's all we're going to talk about. How did, did the fall of the first human beings lead to us here today? How does it, how does it look right now? That, how did that fall look in our modern times? We, we all know, and this is Sunday school stuff, right? We all know what happened in the first two chapters of Genesis. What, what happened? First two chapters. Creation, right? God created, right? Days one and three, God gave form to what was formless. The earth was without form and void, it says, right? So God gave form to what was formless, meaning he created for nothing. Okay? God created light on day one. If you think about that, that's, that's cool, right? Because he hasn't created the sun yet. What's the light? He created light in day one, sky on day two, dry land day three. Then it says in the first part of Genesis, the earth was uh, uh, void and, or sorry, formless and void. It was formless and empty. So after God created day one, two, and three, the sky, the light, the dry land, what did they have to do next? Fill it up because it was empty. Then God created, filled up the land with seed-bearing vegetation. 
uh, as part of his work at day three. He filled the skies with what? Sun, moon, and stars. Day four, then he filled the waters with swarms of living creatures and the heavens with birds. Uh, and day five, and then day six, he created land animals. T. Desmond Alexander said, and I quote, on the first three days, God creates the environment that creatures of days four to six will inhabit. I mentioned this during our uh, study of Ephesians, right? When, when it says there that we are created by God for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in it. Christians, we're, we're, cre we're creatures, new creatures, right? Where's our environment? If that's how God creates, creates the environment first, creates the creatures next. And then Ephesians says, God created the environment of good works for us to walk in. Where should we be? Where would we most flourish in good works? That's why your faith has to, has to make evidence of it through the good works because that's where you'll feel most alive. You see that in Genesis. God didn't create the fish first. And then there's no water, or land first, I mean, land creatures first, no land. Created the environment first. And then he created the creatures after that. Now, the climax of day six is when he created us, right? Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Make note of that. We are in charge, men, human beings are in charge of everything, right? So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. 20, uh, Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, uh, the earth and the heavens. Uh, 18 to 24. Or sorry, 2-5. Two, two when no bush of the field has yet, uh, was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. He made him out of dust, not out of mud. Out of dust. Uh, 18 to 24. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of uh, every field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, that was its name. Uh, the man gave names to all livestock, all the birds of the heavens, all, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs up in his place with flesh. That rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, what? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
and shall be woman, called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave father, mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So when man was created, first of all, he was not, he was created to be in charge of everything. He was created not to be alone. And he was created to be one flesh with somebody. <laughs> he needed someone. Okay, that's the only time that God said during creation, not good. Right? If you look at all creation, God always says, this is good. This is good. This is good. When man was alone, God said what? Not good. <laughs> he needs somebody. And it can't be the hippos or the cows. or the, It can't be that. It has to be somebody like him. And that's, that, that's why we say, yeah, women are helpers, but we're not, we're, you know, you're not unequal. Okay, the same way. We are equal in the sight of God, and as far as, far as our beings are concerned, we're equal. Right? Because it's not good for men to be alone. We're social creatures. Right? So God created that, and, they, and then it led to the marriage, becoming one flesh. That's going to come into play later on. Um, and notice how the creation of man is mentioned both in the first chapter and in the second chapter of Genesis. Why? It's to show that man, the, the man that God made in his image, is not the same as all the other land animals that God created on the sixth day. So, we're, you know, I know some people here love their dogs more than their kids. No, <laughs> they're different. My wife, she loves the dog more than us. No, right? We're created different. Um, and also, it shows you how God values man. In Hebrews, only man gets it. Remember? We're, we're, uh, we're even higher than angels. Why? Because the fallen angels, they can't be saved. <laughs> God's not going to save them. But fallen man? saves. There's a value in us, intrinsically, um, and that's shown in Genesis 2, in the creation of man. That's why abortion is such evil. Because they don't value life. Right? Uh, I'm getting out of topic here, but um, that's how much, you know, value God placed on man. He saw a man, he said, I'm, I'm going to make one in my own image. I'm going to put him uh, in charge of everything. And then he, he brought them into marriage, right? Notice the, the significance of the institution of marriage at the end of chapter 2. Man and woman being created in God's image, which God brought together uh, in marriage as one flesh. What does that reflect of? Who's that reflection of? God's triune nature. That even though he's one God, He's three. Husband and wife, yeah, there's two of you, but you're one flesh. You're, what does it say when, uh, when you guys got married? Um, let, uh, what God put together, let no man tear apart. But my question is, can you really tear apart a godly marriage? You can't. My professor in Old Testament says it's like uh, it's like if you have green clay and blue clay and you mix it together, 
and it becomes a green clay. And if your kid all of a sudden starts looking for his blue and his yellow clay, where's my blue and yellow clay? It's a green clay now. Can you separate the green clay? That's the picture of marriage. That's why it's so powerful because that's a picture of our relationship with God. Once you're in there by faith through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no yanking you out. You can't separate. Right? That's why those of you who don't believe in once saved, always saved, maybe it was explained wrong to you, but that's what it means. When you're saved, when you are blood-related because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no serrating you. It's like no matter how I hate my parents, if, I don't hate my parents, but the, those, of you who, those of you who hate their parents, no matter how, hate you, how much you hate your parents, they're still, I don't care, change your name, I don't care. They're still your parents. That's huge. And it's huge once we get to the Sin part, right? God created man in his own image to the, to, to the point where he put them together as one flesh, just like he is, right? Um, this is a powerful picture of God on earth. The marriage is a powerful picture of God on earth that the enemy sought to destroy. That's why he went after Adam and Eve. Let's read it. 1 and 2, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall eat of any tree of the garden? The woman replied to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Right? Who did the uh, serpent approach first. Remember, his aim is to destroy marriage. Who did he approach first? The woman. Why? Oh, because the woman's a helper. She must be very gullible. You know, uto uto. <laughs> right? Is that, is that the reason why? The woman is gullible. That's why he, she was tempted first. Is that the purpose of the serpent? So that he could destroy the marriage? No. He's trying to destroy the marriage by reversing roles. Okay? The woman was tempted. Okay? And what happened when she gave in to the temptation? Without asking her husband, by the way, and the husband just sitting there doing nothing. Roles were reversed. And that's, what, that's what Satan was trying to do. He was trying to reverse roles in marriage. All right? What else? He was trying to reverse roles between the role of God to the man and his role to the, to the couple. Right? Before, the couple only listened to God. After the temptation, they started listening to roles reversed. Right? What else? The role of man when it comes to nature. Before, man was in charge of nature. He, there, it was 
it was safe to live in on earth no matter where you go nowadays mm -mm, i was just watching a documentary in australia all the salt water crocodiles are coming closer and closer to the uh, to the beaches eating people man's supposed to be in charge of nature why are we scared of crocodiles why are we scared of snakes why are why every time we fly scary <laughs> because it might crash when it's cold can you do anything that hurricane going to nova scotia can you do anything earthquake in um, there was just an earthquake big one in asia were they able to do anything i thought we were in charge because of when this happened roles reversed instead of us being in charge well you know what we still think we're in charge right we're still top of the food chain no you're not go 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 face to face with a grizzly bear see who wins roles reversed and the, the worst one was the reversal of roles or what was the reversal of roles okay led to broken relationships okay. when the woman gave in to temptation um, instead of man leading her the woman led the man right. same effect took place as far as the role of God in life of man's concern instead of being sovereign all-powerful all-knowing God of the universe when the first human beings ate the fruit it gave man a false sense of knowledge which led to them being convinced of their own sovereignty and power. You read the account? When, when Satan says, uh, eat this fruit, oh, we're going to die, God said. Satan said, no, you're not. You're going to be like God. Right? Even God said, uh-oh, they've ate of the fruit. They're like us now. That's why they got kicked out, lest they become really gods and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. That is why we need salvation. After we ate of the fruit, well, I say we because it's we're born this way now after what happened to Adam and Eve, we gained knowledge. We gained knowledge. Eating of the fruit is a straight pointer to rebellion right? instead of us just worshiping God for who he is instead of Adam and Eve just you know just clinging to the source of life in God enjoying God being able to walk with God the serpent made them think that oh you could be like you could be God and they wanted to be like God and they gained they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and Piper says that the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents independence from God. Because they, I, I don't want you to be my God. I want to be my own God. See what the, what's happening there? I don't want you setting the rules. I want to set my own rules. 
mystery of knowledge of good and evil represents independence from God. There's nothing wrong with having knowledge of good and evil. Check out Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said to the man, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. God knows good and evil. There's nothing wrong with it. But the problem is this. There's a saying that says, knowledge is power. Have you ever heard that saying? Knowledge is power. And that kind of power can be dangerous in the wrong hands. So God being all-knowing and at the same time all-powerful and ultimately good, really is the only one who is worthy of that kind of knowledge. I think that's the reason why God had to warn Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. God being the creator and source of life, he did not want human beings to cut their dependence from him because he knows without him, they're going to die. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, what they're saying is, God, I don't care about your rules. I'll make my own rules because when I eat this, I'll be just like you. I'll be God. Knowledge is power. So, what happened after that? Apart from the source of life, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve, ultimately, they died. Uh, and the rest of the people after them died as well. The enemy succeeded in reversing the roles in the garden. Man and woman used to listen to God alone. They now listen to the serpent. Instead of man leading the woman, the woman led the man. Uh, and there was a reversal of roles, led to reversal of relationships, uh, not only between woman and man, but between man and God. That's why when God called out to the man, where are you? They were hiding. Reversal of roles affected their relationship before they would run to God. They hear God walking in the garden, they would run to him. Now they hide. Piper said this, the essence of the fall of uh, even Adam and all of us in Adam is the supreme pleasure we have in being independent and deciding for ourselves what is true, right, and beautiful rather than finding supreme pleasure in God as the fountain of all that is true and right and essence of the fall is preferring to be God rather than to enjoy God. And it leads us right back here. Why is worship losing its weightiness and significance? Because we prefer to do it our way instead of God's way. So we add all kinds of stuff. Lights, music, action. Smoke screens, jokes, so that the ego of man will be stroked and his craving for entertainment will be satisfied. Hmm. That's what happened. And remember how bread used to be made in the time of Exodus, how the Israelites would leave. Uh, bread used to be made in the time of Exodus. They would leave the dough or they would leave a little bit of the dough 
and use it to leaven a new batch of dough. That's how we became who we are, through the leaven of, of Adam. It's been passed on from generation to generation so that the seed of sin it continues to multiply and multiply. We all have that a bit of leftover leaven dough in all of us coming from Adam and Eve. That's why we all have a tendency to want to be God. That's why we have a tendency to want independence. That's why we want that ability to make our own decisions. We don't want to listen to anybody other than myself. We want to make our own rules, make up our own truths. Case in point, gender issues now in society. There's only two genders. Biologically, what? By biblically speaking, is what? Man and woman. But now there's, I, I don't know, I don't know anymore. Uh, I, I, was, I stopped at LGBTQ. I stopped there. Now there's 2A plus. Where did that come from? Man thinking, I know better. God messed up when he made me. I know better. I am not I, what my gender says I am. Because I know better. I make my own rules. Not how it works. It doesn't work like that. But see where the root of it comes from? Eating of the tree of knowledge. Of the, knowledge is power. If you can't handle it, I, I was just... Uh, we were watching. I was watching this. Um, mention her name. Yonmi Park. Have you heard of Yonmi Park? Yonmi Park is uh, my friends from Korea. Yonmi Park is a defector from North Korea. And she's, she wrote a book. Um, her book's title is In Order to Live. Okay, you guys want to? get that, get that, watch it, watch her on YouTube. She tells her story about how it's like in North Korea. In North Korea, they're pretty much sheltered from the rest of the world to the point where um, Yonmi Park is saying that they didn't know that there were other countries outside of North Korea. They didn't know that. And in North Korea, this is, this is what's knowledge is power, right? In North Korea, they're being told that, you know, the Bible is true. There's a church in North Korea. And that God is true, Jesus is true, uh, you know, uh, whatever the Bible says is true. But they apply it to their leaders. Like the father of uh, the leader right now, his father, they see him as God the Father. The father of Kim, Kim Jong, I think, Un. His father, they see, North Korean sees him as God the Son. That's why they still worship him 
till this day because they don't think he's dead. Because the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why they still worship. Both of them. Knowledge is power. The uh, young, uh, I forget his name. I forget her name. Uh, Yonmi Park, she said that when she first got out, um, she was, uh, she saw a trash can. She didn't know what a trash can was. Because in North Korea, they don't have trash cans. So he, she, asked, she asked the person, what's this for? She's like, oh, that's where we throw stuff that we don't need. It's garbage. Yon Mi was like, you can afford to throw stuff away. There's stuff that you don't need that you throw away, really. Because in North Korea, based on her story, nothing gets thrown away. There's no food. In fact, springtime, they call it death season. Why death season? Because what happens is the dead people who die of starvation, mostly they die of starvation and infection, are eaten by rats because they were just, they're just left on the street. Uh, this is the, from, their, from her story. The people would go to work starving. And sometimes they don't even make it to work. They die on the way to work. And they're just left there. That's why the train stations, they say, are full of dead people. Anyway, dead people uh, are just on the street or sometimes in the hospital just on, you know, the parking lot. They're not buried. They're just sitting there. And they're being eaten by rats. And the kids are so hungry that they go hunt the rats to eat them. And then those kids die. Rats eat them. Kids eat rats, and it's just a whole cycle. Did it have to be like that? Does it have to be like that? No. But because the leaders want to be God, they restrict their people of knowledge. They don't have a word for love. They don't have a word for compassion. They restrict that kind of knowledge in the people so that they wouldn't Rebel, they wouldn't ask questions, and it's been ingrained, passed on from generation to generation to generation. They're brainwashed like that. And it's not just her. I watched another one, uh, interview of another um, survivor, so to speak, defector that got out of North Korea. Same story, dead people on the streets, no food. What's sad is, okay, again, knowledge is power. What's sad is the way that, um, I keep forgetting, Yonmi, okay, the way that Yonmi got out, okay, how did she get out? They have to go through, a, they call it a broker. It's, it's, it's really not a broker, it's a, um, what do you call that, human traffickers? So they have to go to human traffickers in order to get out. What happens is that human traffickers um, escort them across the border to China. And the only way that they're going to able, be able to stay in China is to be sold as slaves to, to Chinese. And they want women. Uh, most of these people that buy, they buy, they only buy virgin uh, women. Um, her mother, Yanmi's mother, 
um, was already raped several times before they even got across the border, that she was only sold for $30. Yanni was a virgin. She was young. She was sold for over 300 or less than $300. But that's what they had to go through. But they're willing to go through that just to get out. Here's the funny, not funny, but interesting part. They're so used to that kind of life that when Yanmi was uh, rescued and made it to South Korea, uh, they were trying to help her with her freedom. They were asking her questions like, uh, simple questions. Like, because in North Korea, uh, they tell you what to think. Right? So when they ask her, what's your favorite color? She didn't know, what, she didn't know how to answer. Because in North Korea, they say red is your favorite color because that's the color of the republic. She didn't know what to think. She didn't know what to, 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 to say. To the point where all this knowledge is starting to pour into her that she was like, you know what? This is too painful. This is too much. I can't, she can't handle it. Just if, if, if North Korea was, was to give her some potatoes, what say, some frozen potatoes, she would go back to North Korea just so that she didn't have to take in all of these things and have to decide for herself what to do. Because she was so used to being told what to think. And there's a point in that, <laughs> is that sometimes, you know what, we're so used to living a life of mediocrity when it comes to our being Christian, that sometimes sermons like this does not really, because it's hard to absorb everything. I'll just, I just want to stay where I'm at. I don't, I don't want to hear this anymore. And hopefully none of us are at that point. I'd, I'd rather go back than to start hearing and learning all these things. I'd rather go to a different church. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather just stay home. Because again, where is that rooted in? I think you know. We have this false sense of control. We have this false sense of knowledge. And we think we know. It's hard to hear that injustices that are happening that way. Uh, Yanmi even said that, you know what, they keep talking about the Holocaust. Um, you know how the Holocaust, six million Jews, and, you know, that happened in the 40s. 42. This is happening right now. Nobody's talking about it. And we're here. We're talking about injustices here. Right? Like those people, uh, like, uh, what do you call this? Uh, they're rallying because of the vaccine. What? You know more than the PhDs. You know more than the doctors. You know more than... You know more than the government. Try running the government for one day. See, where, see what happens. You know how hard it is? But it all leads back to that. We know more. We don't want to listen. We don't want to... I'm my own God. I'm my own, I make my own rules. I make my own truth. 
And you think about that, it's at the root of every injustice, every evil that we see in the world. This God complex that we all have is behind our greed, is behind our lust. It is behind every war that has happened and will happen in the history of mankind. It is behind the attack on marriage. Remember, first sin happened as an attack on marriage. What's, going, what's happening right now? Attack on marriage. They're changing the definition. They're changing what marriage is. And somehow, we can't say anything about it because when you say something about it, you'll get canceled. That's why churches just, just keep quiet about it. If I'm not here next week, you know where I'm at. I'm probably in jail or somebody probably saw this video. But it's, it's what's happening is still what's happening. It's behind all this attack on marriage, the devaluing of human life. It's behind every harsh word that comes out of my mouth. It's just coming closer and closer to home. Right? Sometimes we say something that we shouldn't have because we want to prove our point because we were right and they're wrong. the root of every gossip every slander that we speak every evil thought it's behind our unrighteous anger it's behind our envy right why is that person driving a nice car that should be me why is this why is that should be mine. Behind that. It's the reason behind all the death that you see around us. It's the reason uh, why whether the death is natural, whether the death is by disease, whether it's by accidents and catastrophes. This is the reason we got why. Especially catastrophes is nature. <laughs> Reverse roles. Instead of us controlling it, we're under its mercy. The desire to gain independence from God is what, is what separated us from the source of life, what separated us from the Creator. And because of what happened in Genesis 3, man has been destined for death ever since, both physical, as far as your separation from this world, and spiritual, as far as our standing from God. And the sad part about that is that man thinks that running away from God, being separated from God, is the way to life. That's what we think. That's what we know. That God, going to church, Christianity, that's no. Let me go this way. Right? It's like uh, you have toddlers. Right? When your toddler gets away from you, and they're so happy. <laughs> Running around the street. You ever had a toddler do that? That's, that's us. You don't know, like, you know, on the street you'll get run over. In the street somebody will pick you up and kidnap you in the mall. That's us. I don't care if I get run over. <laughs> it's better without my parents. Better without God. question now is, how does God solve this problem? How does God fix the problem of man's sin? How does he, how does he do it? Come back next week for that. For more of you.
over time again. But please take this and take it home. And if you have to listen to it again, listen to it again. And read Genesis again. Look around you. Watch the news. Watch. This is happening around us. We just choose to neglect it. We live in this bubble in North America that everything's good. And meanwhile, there's other people out there that's like suffering up till now. I have no choice but to. Because somebody who knows, using their knowledge to oppress people. That's the, that's the effect of what happened to us back in Genesis. Think about it. Come back next week. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be great. And be gracious. Just